Welcome to the Freelancer's Guide to Life and Business. This is Emily Leach, your host. This podcast is about real people running successful freelance businesses and living a full life. It's about sharing those actions and strategies that these people used to overcome challenges that could have stopped them in their tracks. It's about how you can pull from these lessons to navigate your own challenges and come out the other side quicker. Being stronger together means sharing our stories that are full of meaningful nuggets to help you get more out of your freelance business. So let's get on with the show. Our guest in this episode has overcome some amazing challenges. Imagine having lived on the street, eaten out of a garbage can, and then finding the courage in the path to move your entire life for the better. Our guest today has lived that life and is now running a six-figure business, traveling the globe, teaching individuals and corporations and organization leaders how to run better businesses. I am so excited to have Shoshana Kogan visit us today and tell us about her story. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Emily. It's pretty cool to me, too. It's definitely not something I even set my sights on uh, 30 years ago when I was living in the streets and, uh, you know, dumpster diving in poverty. I ended up for the last 22 plus years having my own leadership training business, coaching, consulting, facilitation. And I entered into that literally through volunteering in a community because I was unemployed. And it wasn't the only time I was unemployed, but it was one of the times. And I was asked to run a small program out of Minnesota. And so basically through volunteering, I was invited to take a low-paying directing uh, AmeriCorps VISTA volunteer program. And through that, within a couple of months, I was invited to an international, to a leadership program. And by the second day, the director of that leadership program called the National Service Leadership Institute, funded by the federal government, asked me if I would be one of their national trainers. So they very quickly brought me in, trained me up, and I was keeping that job very low pay. It was a big $8,500 a year, but it was more than I had before. Um, And it was more than volunteering paid. And it (laughs) just set me up right away with clients, with trainings, and they got me all over the country and started to grow my skills. And that was more than 22 years ago now. So I launched completely independently from them many years ago and decided that I really love the international global world as well. And so that was a real intent. So every time there was any opportunity, paid or unpaid, to do international work, I took it. And so that's really been incredible. So I mentioned two days ago, I returned from Mexico City. I'll be doing some work in the Philippines and Cebu. And every year I really seek to expand my international opportunities as well as the service, because like that Spider-Man quote, you know, with power comes responsibility. And it's certainly part of oh, my yeah. Jewish cultural heritage as well. So I believe that we need to give back. So whether it's paid or unpaying because it's a nonprofit or a small organization that doesn't have the funds for leadership, if it's international, I try to say yes wherever I can. That's amazing. Thank you so much for your servants. I want to dive back into, you said that you were dumpster diving and homeless. I would imagine that there's at least a chance that someone that is maybe in that homeless position right now could be listening to that podcast or have a family member that is listening Mm. to this podcast and feeling the weight of maybe not feeling like they know how to help, but you've been there and you've pulled yourself out and 
you've made a really great life for yourself. So I think it's a great opportunity to share that story and maybe dive into the steps that you took. I know you talked about volunteering. Can you go back to when you know, you're living on the street and I don't know what your feeling was like at that point in time. Maybe you could share some of that if you were comfortable with it. And then what was the thing that said, this is the next step I'm going to take to get out of this? Yeah, so many things. So I would say that I had hit rock bottom and that in some ways became my impetus. And sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. So I had been in an addictive relationship. I had a lot of codependency issues. As codependents will recognize, it's hard to walk out even when everybody else wonders what you're doing in there. And we had been living in poverty for a long time. So that was actually not the hardest part of it. The hardest part was that I was so unhappy and I was so negative. And my self-talk was, I believe if I assess it somewhat objectively, I think it was about 95% negative. I didn't have any sense of like, I'm excited to wake up today and I have all these things I feel like I can offer and do. And I just felt I was depressed. I think I was actually frightening. I finally got into counseling and I think I frightened my counselor when I talked about things that she took as, you know, suicidal ideation. And so that was very scary for her. It was scary for me, but I was in the middle of it. So I think I didn't probably see it for what it was as clearly And I realized that when I hit that rock bottom and that I didn't have a friend that I felt like I could reach out to, I had friends and I had family, but I had way too much pride to ask them for support or help or even to let them know how bad things were. And that's also the nature of codependent relationships. So what happened was a whole bunch of things went wrong, a car accident, we were the middle car, I was just breaking up. I didn't own anything but an old rocking chair and my ex-partner smashed it up in the breakup when I told him I needed to leave. And I didn't have money at that point at all. And so I was living in this little shed for a while. My clothes were wrapped in plastic, you know, keep the bugs and the mice off of everything. And I found a, before I ended up leaving that small town in central Washington, that I had been in with this ex-partner that was just an ex as of that time. I wandered into a used bookstore and for, I think it was 25 cents. I'm looking back to see, yeah, here it is on my bookshelf. I just wanted to, I know this is a podcast and nobody can see this, but I kept the book. I bought the book, Creative Visualization by Shakti Gawain which is really, really old. She was some hippy-dippy chick. I didn't know who she was. It said, write down your goals, write down what you want this week, this year, this month, you know, this lifetime. And I didn't have anything to lose. So I wrote down a lot. And it was that or, you know, hurl myself off a bridge. And that didn't seem to be a very appealing option. So I followed her instructions. And this is actually the old book. And my name was Susan then. And I wrote down this, and through this little book, I wrote down, oh, I want to stop being so negative. I want to have at least one or two women friends. I want to be able to go jogging. I was injured with whiplash and, you know, I couldn't feel anything but pain in my neck and my body. I wanted to save some money. I wanted to maybe big, 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 big dream, buy a little house in the country and grow flowers and give them away and stop feeling like an angry victim. Just like I was so angry, I could out victim other victims like most people, you know, had challenges. My dad died when I was young. My mother was a superhero, Shiro, who raised four of us. But there were challenges that happened and other ones as well when I was young. Nevertheless, I realized when I heard this woman speak, Alice Cornby Sheldon, she said, I used to sneak into things and I broke some laws and I used some drugs and I stole some things and, you know, when I was really in the bottom of my, in the pit of my life. And uh, she said, if you don't love your life and you don't love your name, 
you're going to hear more than any other thing in your world. Change it. Change your life. Change your name. And I thought, I felt like she was talking to me. I had snuck in, but I thought, oh my God, this woman, she knows me. She sees me and I'm not living the life I want and I don't even love my name. So I took my Hebrew name and I started, I continued in counseling. I started working on my self-talk. I started building my compassion and empathy for myself. I started taking risks. I had taken risks, but a lot of stupid risks in my life, you know, like dangerous risks, not yeah, not smart, emotional risks, you know. <laughs> so yeah. I started doing things differently, and I started realizing it's better to reach for the stars and miss the name for a pile of manure and hit, which is what I'd pretty much done. And I did a lot of what scares me, and I keep doing that. I do public speaking all over the world. I've worked on six continents and been to seven And I work with thousands and thousands of people in coaching and training keynotes. I'm still terrified of public speaking. And I know you can relate to this, Emily. It still (laughs) scares me and I still do it. And I teach public speaking and I teach this stuff. And I'm always working on my courage zone, which I think is what we all need to be doing. So, yeah, so there's lots of things that have helped. I would say gratitudes, daily gratitudes, building resilience and grit, finding ways to be of service. Because I did eventually, within 18 months, buy that little house in the country, start working in a welfare-to-work program, started saving my money quickly, started walking a block and then a half a mile, and then I ran the Toronto Marathon slowly. I came in almost last, but I finished, you know, 26 miles. I was proud. So I realized that having goals, working hard, building a Thrive Tribe, Ariana Huffington speaks about the Thrive Tribe. Mine is now global because I've spent a lot of time on seven continents, so I really believe in the global Thrive Tribe. Some people, it's mostly local, and that's great. I think we need to build that up. So it's been many, many, many lessons and trying things and and experimenting. And someone told me I would have a six-figure income. For example, last year, I would have said, you've absolutely lost your mind. You know, (laughs) if they had said that 30 years ago. Yeah. I'm like, really? I'm digging food out of a you know a dumpster behind a grocery store. I don't think you know what you're talking about. But more is possible than we ever even dream. So a lot of it does boil down to, as it does with all of us as humans, we have to want to. We have to find that glimmer of hope in ourselves, even if it's we can't see any proof of it around us. You know, physical proof. We have to believe mm-hmm. in it in ourselves. It sounds like in order to be able to mm-hmm. to really move to the next phase. Exactly. And I also believe that nobody does it alone. Like when I think about how powerful, for example, getting into a women's support group, I moved to a new place for this new job that was working in a welfare to work program, helping single mothers get their lives together. I was barely a step ahead of them, to be honest, although I did have my master's degree by then. And I I remember thinking, you know, if I don't know anybody here, I could at least invite one or two women that I've met and ask them to invite two women that they like. And then we can start our own women's connection, sort of the community. And so like this Sunday, I'm going to be having a women's clothing exchange potluck and appetizer party. And I do it once or twice a year for at least 30 something years. What I've realized is that then women bring friends that I don't know is that we keep growing our support system and that we need each other, right? Sometimes we offer hope. I did a workshop in Oregon a couple of weeks ago before the Mexico City workshop. And there were some women there that I didn't know who came. And I just found out that two of them have made enormous changes in their life, really significant because they were ready and they were part of something that encouraged them. And I shared a bit of my story and a few exercises, some coaching, some tips. 
And they were ready, obviously. It doesn't happen through one magic wand. I wish right. it was that yeah. simple. Yeah. But they were ready. So one just left a very abusive relationship. The other has launched into her business and let go of a part of it that wasn't working for. And that's happened within two weeks in Oregon. So I'm just really excited and grateful for the chance to keep passing on because other people believed in me and really saw in me potential that I didn't see a long time ago, including my high school teacher, Ann Weeks Moy, who I'm still in almost daily contact with. (laughs) She believed in me. You know, I was whatever, 17 years old, and now I'm 61 and living this life I never thought possible. And I just am so grateful. So many people like that. And we do that for each other, even when we don't know it. We have that ability to influence and drop a seed of something that can grow in someone else. And people have done that for me. So we, you know, I, really I feel do. like that's part of my job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I get messages every once in a while. It's like, you know, something as simple as we just miss seeing your smile around. I'm like, oh, what? Because you know, I, yeah. I don't get out as much as I used to get out around, you know, the city. Yeah. Boston. Or, you know, thank yeah. you so much. It always blows me away. Cause, man, yeah. What do I have to give? It just, yeah. but we do. And it showed me a lot. And it's taught me that voice is important. Mm-hmm. And some of us were granted with the opportunity to do it. And I feel as yeah. though it's something that I really can and enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. And the world needs it. Mm-hmm. So what do you feel like? Yeah, your, your biggest challenge in working by yourself and creating this business that you now have. What was your biggest challenge? Well, to be honest, the biggest one has always been right between my ears, my own negative self-talk. Mm-hmm. That's a muscle that I didn't know even was there or the lack thereof or how weak it was. So a long time ago, a really long time ago, I read, I think it's called the New Mood Therapy, or Feeling Good, the New Mood Therapy by, I want to say, David Burns. And I learned a lot about negative self-talk and also Ann Wilson Chafe and other people who were writing you know, 30 plus years ago. And, I, and Daniel Goleman's work on emotional intelligence, I realized that I'm the one that has stopped myself most often, even in poverty, even you know, depressed, even injured. It's really so much about myself, how I work with myself, how I build my resilience, what I do. So I've never taken out a loan, like for my business. I did everything backwards. I didn't do things by the book. I didn't do things the way that I didn't take a business class or learn how to advertise. I don't think I'm the role model of a business well run. I happen to be (laughs) a role model of a successful business, but not a business that went by A, B, C, D. If that makes sense, I've always been a little bit of a rule breaker, but it has worked. And I think it's finding the niche. Every chance I get to support or encourage or offer something to somebody else, I try to say yes, if I can, whether it pays or not. So again, I think it's being of service because it sort of grows the feeling of we can all make a difference. And no matter how much I don't feel like I have or didn't feel like I had, now I feel like much clearer about the the ways I can make impact. And we only see the fraction of it, as you know, anyway. So I think the biggest issue was my own self-doubt and negativity and my own lack of compassion for myself. You know, I'm a perfectionist or recovering. So that was always hard. Like, I'm too scared to do that, or I can't speak loud enough for that, or I'm not going to go in front of 500 people. Are you kidding? Or how could I lead a team of international trainers? Like, all that stuff. Or if I do a workshop in Spanish, like two of them last week, I'll make mistakes. I can't do that. Well, to heck with it, I say, you know what? I just, so now I launch forward and I make mistakes. I'm a fair amount more forgiving with myself. I wouldn't say I don't (laughs) still have a little bit of that, like, doggone it. Why did I say that? That was not what I meant to say. 
But people are very forgiving, and especially if we're forgiving of ourselves and empathic and compassionate. So for me, growing those places inside has been my greatest challenge and also the greatest gift that I could give myself and also teach others. So I love supporting and coaching other people on being able to be that kind of resource for ourselves internally, because if we can't do it inside, it's pretty hard to do it in our lives with our loved ones and our colleagues in our workplaces, right? Absolutely. And I would assume you probably have a fair amount of, I want to say, routines that probably help get you through each day and things like that. Can you share some of those routines that you feel like really benefit your business and the way you address or attack your business? Sure, absolutely. And this might sound for some people counterintuitive, but I make sure that I take time, even if it's very brief, to meditate, to reflect on my gratitude, to exercise, and it's not always in this order by any means, to post and share something, an article, a quote on a daily basis, minimal every day. So something that I can offer back out, which I take in first, you know, maybe an inspiring quote or story or article that I've read. And then I also try to over deliver for my, I think part of why I have a successful business and also still have at least, I tend to take between three and five months a year off if you add up the weeks and three of those months are international. And so I'm doing projects or volunteering or immersion or playing. But what I try to do no matter what is make time for learning. So reading Daniel Goldman book in Spanish right now, which is challenging, but really fun. But I'll try to read, read several articles, listen to TED Talks, and then I try to over-deliver. So I have really, really loyal clients and always adding new coaching and training clients and keynote clients as well. But I don't really advertise. And so I guess it's sort of a, like I met you on a train. I mean, who would expect that? You know, we right. met in a brief encounter. We sat across from each other and we made a, a great connection. You know, so, so much of it is maybe it's serendipity, maybe it's, you know, kismet or karma. I have no idea what it's called, but it's being open and letting things flow through. So making sure that I don't take work or clients that I don't feel like I can over deliver for and I'll pass on work if I don't think I'm the best person for it. And I think I used to be really afraid about that. Like, oh my gosh, if I say no, even though I don't really want to do it, or if somebody asks me to do the, you know, get set up, if I see something that's a setup for failure, you know, we got three hours and we want you to do a diversity training and we've been having all sorts of massive issues going on and how long has it been going, you know, for years and our leadership isn't supportive. Thank you very much, but you know I can give you some suggestions and advice, but you're not going to resolve this issue in three hours of the training, right? So I'm not going to set up the group for failure. So I think some of it is knowing what can I do an outstanding job and then also trying to overserve my clients as well so that they feel like, wow, I may not charge the cheapest rate on the block, but I am going to give them the very best quality that they've ever gotten for the service. So that I can commit to. And then an odd thing I do is I work on a somewhat of a sliding scale. So I work with clients who have lots of money, pay incredibly well. And then I work on the lower end when sometimes some years, some of my clients have lost some of their funding and they haven't got it or very much of it. And then occasionally, like I mentioned internationally, I just work for free because it's something that I love to do to give back. So I think my mother was accidental businesswoman, like I'm an accidental businesswoman. And she thought I was a bit, you know, like, how can you do that? You're, how can you charge clients different amounts? And I just have, you know, it's a trusting relationship. I, If someone says this is what we have this year, 
or this is what we have this month, you know, I'm good with that. And it's built, everything's built on relationship, right? You know that because that's the work you do as well, Emily. Absolutely. And sometimes the value of being able to help support and shine the light on that product or service to the people that are following you or the people that they're trying to reach that you already have the opportunity to reach is way more valuable to the world than the extra few hundred dollars that you might've made if you held out or the no money that you wouldn't have made. Right. If you said, you know what? No, this is my number. And I get that some people absolutely believe that and that's fine, but I agree with you absolutely that like with a conference, I don't bring any sponsors in that I can't believe in their mission and vice versa, that we're not Mm, aligned excellent, and that they Mm -hmm. can believe in the concept and the mission of what I'm doing. And it's more about what we're all trying to achieve and not about your bottom line. I mean, there is some bottom line in there. I'm not kidding myself, but it makes a difference, a big difference, your overall working relationship. Yeah, I agree. And people can feel it when you, of course, our clients can feel it when we care about them. We want them, their organization, their teams to be successful. And when we're willing to go that extra mile or two or five kilometers or whatever it is, I think people know that. And it builds a kind of of a loyalty of we want to stay connected. And I, maybe like a lot of consultants, I don't know, I often become really good friends in uh, some of the things that started off very small, just in connection or through even volunteer service or through an international conference, those things have ended up becoming wonderful work opportunities, incredible learning, sharing colleagues. The Thrive Tribe that I was just with, we represented three different continents in Mexico City. We decided that we would rendezvous there and we were there on some slightly different projects. But, you know, those things just come some that kind of our kindred spirits, you know, tribe for life really is what it feels like. And so for me, I've gotten to a place where there's enough income flowing in and I'm no longer, you know, wondering if I'm going to have enough food to eat or a roof over my head. I have a beautiful, you know, modest home and I live quite simply financially so that I can travel and do whatever I want. I can take as many months off a year as I want. I can really take the work I want and not charge for, you know, when it doesn't make sense to and others, you know, the a reasonable or what's really fair. So the ability to have, I think what it is, is that more than money and more than having another million or $2 million is having freedom and having choice and having yes. the sense of making a difference. And those things for me are priceless, having come from having nothing to now, you know, feeling like by all standards, I'm a very wealthy woman. And yet my greatest wealth is my health, my loving network of people that I get to love and share my life with globally and the opportunity to make some some differences in wherever I can. And boy, I can't even think of a better and constantly learning, you know, being okay with it. I don't always know. And there's more to learn. And I have so many global teachers and, you know, I'm so grateful for that. So I don't know that I ever want to retire. My mother worked till she was almost 80, my uncle till he was 97 and passed away. And they were both business people and they loved what they did. And I like it all. I love my life. And again, if someone had told me decades ago, I'd be doing this globally and having such an incredible life, I would have said, what kind of drugs have you been taking and where can I buy some? <laughs> and get, yeah, where can I get them? <laughs> yeah. And it's a yeah. cleaner life now, I got to say. It's a way healthier, cleaner it's, it's life a, that I live yeah. now. I wouldn't trade it. Oh, man, I'm just sitting here kind of taking all that in. I can't thank you enough for giving us some of your time today. I've got some couple of quick impact questions that I still want to ask you, but I know you sure. can actually see me here and I'm kind of just 
literally your story is, is so touching and has so much power to it and really showing the ability for a human being to take back control of their life. So the first impact question, I think you've already answered, but you may have a different one in mind. And that is what book have you read that has made the biggest impact or change in your life or your freelance business? Oh, wow. Book. Oh my gosh. There's so many. Well, I mean, the pivotal one, the yeah. pivotal one that came, <laughs> came when I was in, you know, living in the gutter, you know, looking at bridge jumping was this creative visualization. So to be honest, I have not reread it. She's re-editioned it a zillion times and I don't even know what she says or what she does or what she writes now. But 30 plus years ago, that book changed my life. And it was, okay. I was it ready. I think it was timing. I was ready for it. I also absolutely love the work of Daniel Goldman's work around emotional and social intelligence. It's one of the core pieces of everything I teach, I think, has to have that foundation to be successful inside and then with others, supporting others. So there's a lot of books I love. But I guess this one is one of the earliest. Also, Viktor Frankl. I mean, I come from generations of rabbis in my Jewish heritage. And Viktor Frankl's book, Who Lost His Whole Family in the Holocaust, Man's Search for Meaning, is such a powerful story of, it's a tiny, tiny book. I have it right here next to this other book. Um, in fact, on the bookshelf, Man's Search for Meaning. I mean, he talks about what it was like in the concentration camp. And no matter what happens to us, that we always have the power to choose to choose our own thinking, to choose our own behavior. And for me, those concepts, they moved the ground that I stepped on because I used to think that we were a victim of what happened to us. It didn't occur to me that we're actually very empowered to take whatever happens to us and then use it for the foundation that we stand on to better serve. Like Khalil Gibran, The Prophet is probably my other favorite book by Khalil Gibran. He talks about how the knives that carve the bowl that holds the joy in our gifts. You know, the knives cut deep and it's hard and painful, but it isn't all that happens. It actually allows us to fill and to offer and to fill over only because I think we've been carved and gone through those things. It's allowed us to have more to give and more to offer and more certainly more compassion. I think I feel now when I see somebody who's struggling, I don't know their walk or what they've been through, but I have a lot more compassion, whereas maybe once I might have judged and thought, well, why don't they just go out and go, you know, do something and get their life good? Well, it's a lot more <laughs> complex than that, right? Right. There, yeah, there's a issues. couple of steps in there. A whole lot. <laughs> and I think nobody does it alone, right? We need each other. We really do. We're each yes. other's species. We really need each other. And I'm no longer embarrassed to say that. I need people in my life. I need meaningful work and I need people. I need support and I give that as well as abundantly as I can. You know, we become, I think, vessels for, for service, for giving and for abundance. And I've come to realize that, that which uh, took me a long time. I'm a slow learner, but I really got it now. I'm one of those slow learners and I have a son that's one of those slow learners. And <laughs> but when we learn it, we get it. You know, and it's yes. like, okay, I'm finally tired of the brick wall and the, the bruises are just, they won't ever go away on my yeah. head. So I'm finally yeah. ready to make that move. And you're right. That's really the critical point. When you have that moment, when that human has the moment that they're ready to make some sort of pivot, I think the big piece there, and you could probably add to this, is that if you're lucky enough to be the person that gets to witness that moment, I think the biggest 
piece of advice, necessarily what we're doing in this podcast, but we are on this session, is to not expect the 180 degree change. Mm -hmm. To be willing to see and witness and support the pivot at whatever level it is and let them move from there. I think the biggest mistake some of us make, I know that I've made it, is having the opportunity to witness that and, and immediately launch into, oh, wow, that's great. So we can do this, 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 and this. And then the person is sitting there going, I'm, I'm just ready to read the book. <laughs> Whatever that moment is that they're finally ready to take that mm-hmm. piece, we got to mm-hmm. hold them where they are. Yes, that's right. It's like gardening. You know, we can't just uh, think, okay, I just watered and put some fertilizer on that. Bloom, bloom, oh, damn it, bloom. Yeah. You know? It's like, I needed whoa, whoa, a six foot a... bush here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, and it has it's been a nurturing process. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So patience, of course, is part of it. And incremental changes are really powerful. I, I like the scaling system. I'm a master's level counselor and, you know, from a long time ago. And I really think it's helpful to say, okay, if today I wake up and I'm really in a pit and I'm feeling like a two on a scale of 10, 10 being, you know, like on top of the world and zero being I'm dead, then, you know, if I'm only a two, how about by the end of the day, I find a way, some ways to get myself to a four or five and how can I support and I'll ask other people that I coach or my friends, you know, what will it take to get to, you know, three points up from where you are right now in terms of your negative self-talk or in terms of, I've asked a dear friend of mine, I'm not being a very good listener today, am I? Where would you rate me? How about a three? Oh, man. Okay, so (laughs) I promise by the end of the next three days, I will be consistently, you know, an eight, and I'm going to check back with you. So there's a kind of accountability that we hold ourselves and the people we love and the people we support and the people we coach. And we use as much as we can some accountability measurements even. And I think scaling is, of course, subjective, but it's helpful. And, you know, 360 feedback and getting honest input from other people that we trust that are real with us, right? All those things help because we're never done growing until we're six feet under. Um, I've learned that for sure. Yeah, that's true too. So the last impact question is what tool, and that could be an app, it could be a physical something that you use or do has had the most impact on you in your business. You know, a lot of times people refer to, you know, a specific application or platform that they use, but I think for you, it could be almost anything. Yeah. I would say that LinkedIn is a platform I use to read articles, listen to TED talks and to share things and quotes, et cetera, daily. So LinkedIn is one that's very simple and maybe it's old fashioned, but for me, I like it and I have an enormous network and I love that app. Insight Timer is a free meditation app that I use every morning and I love it. It's very simple and there's thousands and thousands of free meditations, very rich with resource and no cost at all. And then I think the other is not really an app or a a network or a tool, but it's simply growing the Thrive Tribe. People for me, predominantly women that I support and encourage and who also encourage and support me. And that is a growing. So every year I go to an international conference, I call it the Association of Talent Development. It's a Thrive Tribe. And every year it adds more internationals, more people that I feel like are really amazing people. So that's a growing tribe. And we often end up in each other's homes in different continents and countries and sometimes even doing projects with each other. So, So I think those are certainly not all apps or tools or products one could buy, but there are three things that have been enormously helpful 
for me in growing both my wellness, my resilience, and my joy in my life and my work. And those are great. I'm going to go check out, definitely check out the timer because I'm always looking for something that just helps guide that a little bit. You know, I believe in meditation. I really enjoy it. But sometimes when I get really, like now I'm coming up to the conference and here in about 10 days, and I notice that it is much more difficult for me to dedicate the time without something that will help guide me. So that could be really useful for me right now. I appreciate that one. So I have one last question I have found to be very interesting, the array, the vast array of different concepts that come across. So what do you hear when you hear someone ask or say the term financial wellness? Oh, that's a great question. I've been reading a lot of articles about that. It is not a certain amount of money for sure, although I have far more than I ever dreamed possible. What financial wellness is to me is the ability to have more than enough to pay for everything that you need, to have enough left over for what you want, not to excess, and to enough to give away, to freely give away, to serve the things that you believe in, that you want to support and give away for. And so emotional wellness is really unique for each person. For me, I choose to live in a modest home instead of one that's 10 times more than I could afford because that gives me the financial wellness to travel the world, to do all kinds of other things, to serve in ways that I wouldn't, to work on the sliding scale when I want to, and to continue to do all the kinds of things, projects that I love. So I would say financial wellness is when you have You have more than enough, but not so much that you are drowning in material abundance. So it's not up to me. It's not a material answer. But of course, we need more than just enough to take care of our needs. I do believe that. I think the amount of enough for most people, I've read a lot of books and articles starting about 30 years ago, the work of Vicki Robin and Joe Dominguez on Your Money is Your Life. They were featured in Oprah and lots of TV shows. And they were friends of mine many years ago before Joe passed. Vicky's gone on and done a lot of publication and writing. I learned a long time ago that every dollar we earn takes a certain amount of sweat to put into it. And if we are going to spend that dollar, we need to make sure that we get the reward, the satisfaction, the well-being from it. So in other words, before I spend $100 on something, I'll actually think how much of my time and labor went into earning that 100 and will I really gain the value of what I put in or not? And if not, then do I really need that thing or whatever it is, whether it's 100 or 1,000 or 10,000? And that's really valuable for me. That's a really good question to use. I read a book here a few years ago where the gentleman says, to ask the question of yourself, can I afford it? And as soon as you ask that question, if that's the first question that comes into your mind, then the answer is no. If you had to ask if you could afford it, then you maybe cannot. But I love that yours has so much more attachment to yourself, attachment to the energy and the effort and the sweat, as you said, that went into making the $100 to begin with. And it is a big part of, I know, American culture. I had not spent enough time in other cultures to be able to talk to those that we don't stop and think about it. We just, I have a hundred dollars. And so you need 20. Sure. You can have 20 and that may be fine, but then you get to the hundred dollars and sometimes you may feel empty that the hundred dollars didn't serve. I love that. Well, man, do you have any last minute thoughts, feelings, advice that you'd like to share with the audience? Oh boy. Wow. Well, about 7 million, (laughs) 7 million, but nothing that stands out right now, other than that, I just would very much encourage people to the work of Brene Brown, Tara Brock, you know, Simon Sinek, 
Daniel Goldman, there's so many teachers that are out there right now, and then there's millions more that we can learn so much from that we don't have to know it all. We don't have to have it all together. We don't have to act like we've got, you know, I used to think we needed to be demonstrate that we were sort of these perfect, flawless, always confident. And wow, that's just so hard to live up to that. So yeah. I'd say that not only is it easier to support and encourage and love ourselves, and, you know, that little reptilian lizard brain, you know, it's freaking out about like, oh, my God, I'm so scared. Oh, my God, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. Or, you know, we're like a little three-year-old yammering inside of our head, always scared, always, you know, it's mine. I don't want to do it. No, no. Or all the things that that little reptilian brain does. When I remember the power of all these different teachers that I've, you know, never met personally, most of them, but when I just remember like, okay, take out that little girl, take out that little scared lizard, you know, pet and comfort and cuddle and let them be scared, but realize that isn't me. You know, that's not me. I'm not that monkey chatter in my brain. I'm not that little lizard terrified I won't survive, that I'll be starving, you know, or and hungry again. We're beyond that. We're something bigger than that. And so even though that's a part of us, that isn't all of who we are. And I think that ability to separate and also still love and be empathic for parts of ourselves that we're embarrassed or even have been ashamed of in the past and just bring them forward and say, this is part of me too. And it is okay. You know, we're growing together and I can support and love and, and even see that in others, their imperfections and say, you know what, I still love you. I still support you. I still appreciate you. And I'm here by your side while we grow together and while you grow in your own ways and I grow in my own ways. And it isn't about being perfect, and maybe somehow that is perfection. I don't know, but that's, that's <laughs> I think it could be. more than good enough, right? It is. It is very much. Again, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, everyone, mm. for listening. Make sure to subscribe to the channel, and we will see you next week. Thanks a lot, Emily. Take good care. Hopefully, a nugget in this episode helps some of you out there. Until next time, make sure to subscribe to the show, and thank you for listening. This program has been sponsored by Prudential. Prudential is helping Americans achieve financial wellness. Learn more about Prudential and find customized education and tools for independent workers at prudential.com slash independent workers.